Hello and welcome to Read It For The Pictures, the comic book podcast where we read it for the pictures. I'm Dave Clark, and with me is a man who was recently fired from his job as a TED Talks timekeeper for being too menacing, Neil Caput. How you doing, Neil? Yes, we're diving deep into the X-Men this week. Yes, we have, as implied by my acapella guitar solo based on the 90s cartoon, Astonishing X-Men, the most recent version written by Charles Soule and drawn by a new artist team every issue. So, the team for the first issue, Jim Chung with inks by Mark Morales and colors by Richard Isenove and Rain Barreto. Issue two, Mike Deodato Jr. with colors by Frank Martin. And issue three, Ed McGinnis with inks by Mark Morales and colors by Jason Keith. This... As you may know, the conceit for why this book has a different artist at every issue, other than the to get it, keep it coming out on time, and because Marvel doesn't put particularly much stock in artists anymore, is because it all takes place on the psychic astral plane, where apparently the dream logic shifts the way things look. Well, you say that, but... Each of the issues has events that are taking place in the real world, and they're also done by the artists from those issues. So I'm not like maybe at some point the plan was for the shifting astral realm to be portrayed differently by a different artist, but that's not really what's happening here. Well, it's a half-assed solution. So the parts that are taking place on the astral plane do cover half the ass. It's the other half of the ass, the stuff taking place in the outside world, that's bare and chafing. Yeah, I mean, like, it gives us an interesting opportunity because because it's the same writer and the same story, we get to see how, like, different artists approach the same material. But, like, yeah, if... It it feels like trying, I don't know, they're trying to be a little bit too clever, trying to justify this multiple artist thing. I think it was just an excuse. I mean, the story's not going to go on forever, I guess, unless they're just going to have a ongoing title just about a bunch of X-Men stuck on the astral plane. Yeah, it's, well, in a way, every series is a limited series. Because they everything ends, or because Marvel just likes to reboot to number one as often as possible. A bit of both. Fair enough. So, the ba- how should we start with this? We'll start with the first issue? Well, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, the first issue, uh, a basic plot recap. Um, we check in on a bunch of X-Men doing stuff. And then Psylocke is attacked by something, and she's, like, attacking London. Like, she's having some sort of psychic fit. 
Yes, and, and then, the X-Men that come to help her are everyone who happened to be in the general European area. So, yeah, I we've got... To, yeah, I had to double back, and it's like, hang on, so, like someone's in Scotland and someone's at the British Museum, was it? Yeah, and apparently Logan, the elderly Wolverine, and... Rogue were flying over the North Atlantic somewhere, while Gambit and Phantom X were robbing the Louvre in Paris, France. Yeah. So, Europe's a small place in the X-Men world. That, and they all have some means of traveling very fast over sea, land, and air. Mm, perhaps. I guess they... They all show up to help Psylocke, and then they have a very long conversation about what the the rest of the book's going to be about and me flicking through the pages going, when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? I mean Astral Realm. <laughs> well, that's because we run into on the Astral Realm the bad guy of this story, the Shadow King, whose whole deal is that he's a psychic ghost of a super powerful telepath who's trying to control all the minds in the world. Yeah. yeah. And his... Since he has no body, the design they used for him on the astral plane, which I think was pretty clever, the top half is the way his human body looked, which is a fat Egyptian crime lord with a fez. And the bottom half is a giant spider's thorax and legs. Which, if they're trying to sell that, A, he's very much a predatory, irredeemable villain, and B, that he's a corrupting influence with avaricious, gluttonous tastes, then making him a morbidly obese drider works pretty well to sell that. For the record, it's a... Dungeons and Dragons monster that's half it half person, half spider, like a centaur. Usually oh. they're except in that game they're attractive women and not big fat bastards like this guy. I didn't know we had a name for spider centaurs. We do now. Academic vocabulary is very important for learning and understanding the world around you. Of course. But, yes, I'm sure we'll follow up on the plot. The plot of the other issues when we get to them. But, yeah. Um, Is there anything that stuck out to you about this issue? I thought the art was pretty good at what it was selling. Like, this is kind of... Note how a lot of the panels are kind of widescreen letterbox style during the action scene when the X-Men are trying to stop... Psylocke from inadvertently destroying London with her giant psychic butterfly. Yes, that is a thing. Her powers manifest as a giant pink psychic butterfly that's destroying the entire city of London. The Shard, specifically. Yes. Whatever. Do you know what that is? Yeah, it's a building in London. Well, besides that, like any significance to it, you know more about... Nah, that's, that's all I got. Well, I'm I'm American, so I have an excuse for not knowing or caring about the world around me. Uh, a terrible excuse, but an excuse nonetheless. So, 
I'll just look it up right now. Yeah, that's... So, apparently it's a skyscraper that's super tall and has a bunch of different stores and offices on it. So, it seems like... All the hottest London tourism facts here on Read It for the Pictures. Well, apparently they wanted a big, impressive monument that gets a lot of attention from normal people for Psylocke to almost destroy in her psychic panic, so I guess it works okay. Yeah, but, every city's got to have at least one iconic thing to be destroyed in an action movie. At least they didn't go for Big Ben. They're a little more creative here. But for setting up an environment that will be totaled in the midst of the super battle. I think the artist did a pretty good job. I think the initial framing sequence of just showing who all these guys are was pretty good. Like having two page spreads with the top half being one, the top half being one guy and the bottom half being another. And and I thought the colors by Richard Eisenhoff were pretty good with the effects from Psylocke's powers and the way they everything's kind of illuminated by it, giving it that shiny computer coloring that we see. We saw in the last week's Robin Hood comic, but I think it works pretty well here too. Yeah, the coloring is actually what I wanted to focus on the most out of this first issue. It, um... It seems in a lot of places where there would be gradients, like whoever was, like there are two colour artists on this, but it seems in a lot of places they've actually painted the gradient in, like I'm sure I'm sure there's like some places in there where there's a flat gradient, but there's a fair few places where you can see like the, like the texture of the brush as they've like painted the gradient in and... Also, they've a, a fair in a fair few places. The coloring on the characters has like there's like it's almost line work done with the coloring that almost mimics what's being done with the inks. Trying to yeah, make... they've got both thick spot blacks on the characters as well as like digital lighting effects. I'm not sure. I think it actually works pretty well with, even though it's two completely different people, presumably not doing this in tandem, since this is all in production line. Somewhere it works, other places less so, like how Gambit's black cat suit is just solid blacks in most scenes, except for like tiny little gray lines to indicate the where the joints are. Yeah, that's one of the more unfortunate bits. Throughout this scene, they're fighting around these, like, pink explosions, and it's, like, casting colour onto the characters, and, like, it's sort of, like, for the most part, like, it gives a sense of, like, light in the real world, but in Gambit is just a solid black, which... Yeah, it, um... I brought this up a little bit when we talked about that uh, DC Metal issue where, like, Batman's cape was, like, super black around all his super colourful friends, which sort of made it stand out in an awkward way, but this is even, like, like, yeah. 
There's nothing even special about Gambit's suit. It's just what he wore while he was breaking into the Louvre. Yeah. And yes, we do have two heroes on this team who are, like, professional thieves, and nobody particularly cares about it. But then we also have one of them who's a outright villain who has happened to be pulled in, so... This comes up more in the second issue, but the humans of London who call in the military on the X-Men while they're on the psychic plane, they have a lot of good reasons to fear and hate these guys. Like, if you start taking stuff too seriously, it all falls apart, but yeah, they are... Yeah, X-Men are... they're odd. They... Don't seem to always be on the right side of every issue. But, um... Well, he... okay. Well, let's get back to that later, so we can keep talking about the art. I mean, this is pretty. For the first issue, it is fairly standard superhero art in that it's trying to be nominally realistic. Like, there's crazy stuff happening, and everyone looks like a supermodel, even old man Logan. Has, in a few places, they he, they really hit the Hugh Jackman likeness. Yeah, except Hugh Jackman was a Hollywood actor, and this Logan is like a hundred, a few hundred years old, and the we don't really see much wrinkles on him except his brow, which is mainly just to show that he's always looking grumpy. So yeah, he's. Although one interesting thing, like, because, like, we see these exact characters in, like, two more issues being drawn differently, it sort of highlights how, well, how simplified, like, some aspects of the characters are in this. I'll get into it more when we talk about the second issue, but it seems to, like, the characters in this are very solid, and it's always very clear what's go like, what's going on with their body language. Did you find that? That's true. On the other hand, nothing of huge emotional importance other than Psylocke screaming from the psychic attack happens in this issue. So there's not, there isn't much emoting, but there's not really any reason to emote because this is just what the X-Men deal with on a day-to-day basis. And this is just another end-of-the-world event for them. I mean, there is are a few nice body language touches. Like when Bishop, a guy from one alternate dystopian future, and Old Man Logan, a guy from another alternate dystopian future, meet. they're immediately meeting with tension and get a bit of guarded hesitance to attack or not attack each other since they're trying to work out which, if they are from, from bad futures where they became bad guys or not. And I realize how insufferable that all sounds, but I think the based on what they're dealing with, the body language there was cleverly sold. Yeah. And I also think that Phantom X, who wears a face mask 24-7 was done well, especially with his bromantic banter with Gambit, which 
kind of appropriate because Phantom X is a character Grant Morrison designed as a parody of Gambit. Oh, it all comes full circle, doesn't it? Yeah, that the whenever you design a character who's a parody of a ridiculous cliche, they end up just becoming that sooner or later. It was... But you point out how everything's simplified, and that's just a larger part of superhero comics. As characters are handled by more and more writers and artists, their interesting edges gradually get sanded down. Uh, no doubt, but I was, I was talking more about the art. Yeah. They, um... Well, this is probably as good a point as any to move on to the second issue. Yes, the one by Mike Deodato Jr., which actually takes place mostly on the astral plane. Yeah, it um, it has this really weird texture effect throughout it. The Bendy dots used in lieu of dark shadows. They're like Bendy dots, but they're a lot smaller. They um, I remind me a little bit of um, textures I've seen when using 3D modeling software. It's well, it looks like a lot of the stuff is 3D modeled here, like the view over the cityscape, the furniture in the room where the Shadow King and Professor X are playing their game. Also, for anyone who may have remembered that Professor X was dead, he's back in this. As a ghost on the psychic plane who's caught in some kind of dangerous game with the Shadow King. Yes, the whole thing is apparently a Professor X versus the Shadow King situation. Yes. But yeah, they've got this um this really weird texture effect over large chunks of it. And it serves to make like some of the details of certain shots and figures fall away. There's also quite a few spot blacks in the second issue, but it it seems like the artist has deliberately been replacing it with the texture effects, both the dot patterns and like some light hatching on the edges of things. I guess trying to kind of update his art style for digital coloring. Yeah, it's um like it's a deliberate choice. Like when you use like the texture and the detail like serves to sort of it's almost like your eyes are unfocused on certain areas, which then makes it feel like your eyes are more focused on other areas. And it's like contrasting it against the uh art in the first issue by they should remember Jim Chung was the artist in the first issue. Mike Diodato Jr. is for the second one. Yeah, where in the first issue, like, I think every character, like, around them is, like, a thick black line. So you get a really clear read on, like, where they're, like, like how their body's positioned. <laughs> in the second one, because a lot of the detail, like, the detail around the edges washes out into this shadow it's perhaps not as clear. Yeah, sometimes it becomes difficult what's going on here, especially since this issue has... The basic gist of this issue is that the Shadow King's way to try to gain control of the X-Men's minds while they're on the plane is to have them stuck in this kind of 
theater of the X-Men history that I don't know how this works, but I guess the illusion is supposed to bring them under his control. And can the X-Men realize that the story they're being told doesn't really make any sense? Since their lives themselves don't make any sense, I guess that's the point. They even have the X-Men in the audience making jokes about how, like, I just hope it's good because it's $4 a ticket. Oh, I didn't make that connection because that's how much the comics cost. Yes. Um, that's cute. I suppose it's supposed to be cute. It just feels like rubbing it in. But And there's also... Oh, I think Wolverine it's cute. Wolverine commenting on how making something new is risky. Safer to go with what's familiar. Comfort food. If something works, do it again until it doesn't. Which is exactly what they're doing here. But... In a way, this is a, um, a like an interesting follow-up to doing 30 Days of Night last week because this is almost like a digital version of what uh, Ben Templesmith was trying to do there where he was using, like, um, was it like watercolor and paint to sort of create a swirl of texture which he then focused the details on. This is, like presumably started with like the line work for the characters and then adding like digital texture on the stuff that mattered less so the problem here being that the designs the the characters themselves both as designs and as actors in this space just aren't as interesting as 30 days of night oh yeah that um like that had a much clearer story and like was sure about what it wanted to focus on where this has got to juggle what five heroes in the astral realm and three of them in the real world and real people yeah but- and here it's there's an interesting touch where they use blue panel borders for when they're on the astral plane but shift to white when they're on in reality yeah, though I did see that weird panel bordery stuff that was going on. And it it's doubly interesting when there's scenes where they're just against a black background period kind of floating in between space. Yeah. If like if you were like if you just knew that you were doing an issue that involved characters on the astral realm, then like seeking out an artist who does this art style is probably a clever idea where it tries to wash away some of the less important things. Yeah, but Mike Deodato Jr. is all about superhero machismo. He's not the kind of artist who's going to make characters that play to this kind of story it is. So when you have... I didn't really see that much machismo in this one. Like, there's a few shots of Beast where he's ripped, but... Machismo, is both in terms of male gaze as well as the way the superheroes look. I mean, in the brief sequence where we're on the real world and we're talk- and Psylocke's keeping them on the astral plane while her physical body is immobilized, she happens to be immobilized in this crouching position where even... 
where her bottom and her chest are thrusting out. Ah, uh, yeah, that's just that's just awkward. Yeah, like she couldn't be be sitting in a meditating lotus position or something appropriate. She had to be like sensually squatting. Yeah, that's. Hmm. But yeah, um, and, another thing. And Oh, there you go. The big, there's the big C two-page spread once Logan breaks the illusion and realizes that Jean Grey isn't actually seducing him. And it does it doesn't have panel borders in the traditional sense. You see like the spider web lines that are the Shadow King's motif breaking up the different panels, which is a very clever way of framing it with Farouk, Amal Farouk, the Shadow King's face in the center, cursing how they broke his illusion. But in the actual panels, it's just supers fighting supers. And it's very much traditional body types, traditional traditional motions, and lack of any particular character expression in it. Yeah, although part of that could be following up Jim Chung, whose like body language was much more dynamic. Well, it's in the traditional superhero comic, the body language always has to be super dynamized for all the scenes, especially the fight scenes. Though, then again, like I think that in practical terms, having every punch be like a big haymaker really would leave you open for a counterattack. Although, but logic doesn't apply anywhere on the, this more than most comics because it's psychic. Um, speaking of one artist's work affecting the other, it's interesting that the second issue took the time to establish this weird blue panel borders thing, and it's got like weird intricate designs through it for the dream world. But none of the other issues had that motif, so presumably the artists didn't talk to each other. And that would have been a great way to cape some kind of visual continuity in this thing. I mean, even if they just shared an inker or colorist, that would have gone a long way to unifying this series. And even on the psychic plane, there have to be some kind of elements to make sure we know it's psychic. But once we get to the third issue, and I guess that's where we're going now. Oh, just before we head off to the third issue, um, another like inconsistency between the first and second is what London looks like. In the first issue, it's like a like a bluey sort of like dawn color when it's not being attacked by a fluorescent pink butterfly. Ah. Uh. And in the second issue, like, it's like a desert yellow. Like, if it didn't have the caption saying that this was London, I would have assumed it was, like, Cairo or something. Maybe it's a different time of day and there's a different light on it. Like, how long have the X-Men just been lying there while their minds are on this astral plane? True. But, yeah, well, I suppose it's a good thing they did have that caption box there. I guess... It um it brings so, to mind the um series um that Alice Cott did called Zero, which had a different artist on each issue. But each But issue... that also had one colorist every issue. 
and most of the issues were taking place at different times and places. Yeah, they, like the one common element was the main character, and it like jumped all around his life. So you didn't need, like, you didn't have the pressing problem of having to, like, this, like, yeah, like all these oh. stories, like the each of the issues is going to have to show London, but all of the artists are doing it really differently. So. Not to mention differences in the characters themselves. I noticed how Logan has a different hairstyle every issue. Does he? Yeah, in the first issue, he's got it, a complete buzz on his gray hair, except for his mutton chops. In the second issue, he's got the traditional wolverine hair, which is the big flock of seagulls spikes on both ends. And in the third issue, it just goes back to being kind of generally shortish, but having ragged edges. Hmm. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, it's it, it, like if you like when we just read like an, an issue on its own, we like at least it's my instinct to treat every aspect of it as some creative decision trying to communicate something about the story. But if you've got like the hair of the characters changing each issue, it sort of suggests that it's an afterthought and it's just whatever each individual artist liked the most. I suppose. Yeah, you can see little things like that in the various issues. But in the third issue, I guess we're moving to that now. Yes, onwards. To start wrapping this up. The third issue is by Ed McGuinness, who is a much more cartoony artist than the other two. Like, he's not really aiming for the kind of realism the other two did. And he's got more exaggerated faces and body language. Like, it opens up with Logan's individual escapade on the astral plane where he's trying to climb an ice wall with nothing but his claws. You see kind of a comical effect of surprise before he falls again. Yeah, I, um, I didn't recognize that it was Ed McGuinness at first. Um, it almost, like, flicking through the art, or, or, like, it struck me as some of the things you might see in, like, when they do, like, like all-ages versions of X-Men stories. Except for the fact that there's clearly blood coming out from the openings of his claws. Like, they they tear through his hands when he extracts them. Oh, uh, yeah, the bit of the material is, like, the stuff going on is not stuff that would make it into an all-ages comic. No, which is why this had the biggest whiplash in terms of mood compared to the script, because this... This is a cartoony, stylized, kind of bomb, kind of bombastic and expressive version of Logan's story, which is incredibly dark and violent. Even more so because this is the old man Logan who has like a hundred more years of suffering and loss to him. Yeah, in a way, the Logan parts are the bits that I like the least about this. Really? I I liked them the most because I felt like the contrast actually, while contrasting with everything else in the comic 
work the best as as dark and posturing as Wolverine is. He also is fairly ridiculous, so that kind of ironic distance helped. Oh, it is, it is funny to draw Wolverine looking like this, but um, when you like they show the scenes in the real world, and they've got um. Like, there's the three awake mutants and the five that are asleep. And yeah. also the humans who are, like, trying to control the situation. They squeeze a Rightly lot. Rightly so in this incident, because, as they point out in the second issue, every single one of these X-Men has done a lot of things ranging from morally questionable to outright evil. And... While we know that most of them have some excuse, like, I was possessed, I was impersonated by my evil twin, I was corrupted by some kind of outside energy, the normal people don't know that. And if they did, it'd probably just seem like a convenient excuse. I can relate to people not really believing that you're possessed by an evil energy. It's an excuse that hasn't that I've tried and hasn't worked with me a fair few times. Yeah, I've learned not to rely on the Archangel's defense, because just because it was my evil side coming forth with blue skin and metal wings, as it almost does here, it doesn't really fly in court. Yeah. So there's a nice sequence here where the London military shoot Archangel when he's in his normal form with feathered wings, and he's about to turn blue and archangely, but he manages to rein himself in, and he just has a, like a cheery smile, and he's just trying to ne- talk it out with them. Yeah, cheery angel is an odd image, but it, like, oh. it works again, I think, yeah, like, like angel, bishop, and Psylocke, those are the awake ones. Yeah. They all, like, you get a a fairly solid read that they've all got different personalities through the art. And also they've been exaggerated in different ways. Like Bishop just looks very, very big. Yeah. I mean, in the other issues, he looks pretty tall and muscular, like pretty much all the male X-Men are, but here he's absolutely jacked and he's got a big lantern jaw. Yeah. But when you get to the Wolverine parts, he's mostly walking around a black or white void, like with the snow, and there's not a whole lot for him to play off. Well, that's partly a consequence of the story, because Wolverine is being put through his own gauntlet of trials, and his way of dealing with it is just to keep focusing forward, to block everything out and focus only on who he's going to kill, because that's what's worked for him. And he also, he just remains a a cranky old man throughout all of it. Where even in this shot, which is like the sequence where Angel is like clipped by a bullet, most of the background of that is just Sky, but because they like the focus is on trying to convey the story through his expression, like, yeah... Like, that's got a blank background, but is working with different expressions, which I think works a little bit more than Wolverine being in a blank background, but being cranky the whole time. Well, it's also 
it's not a blank background so much as like a frozen void like the ground is entirely snow he had to climb up a glacier wall as professor x points out even though wolverine wants to win he needs to suffer he's got a lot of self-hatred and he's going to make this psychic thing harder on himself on purpose it reminds me of that uh there's a John Byrne issue where there's a snowstorm and it and how it manifests is the panels just being white with speech balloons. Uh, yeah, it, um, it's interesting when you can, can find like a creative and story reason for there to not be much going on in the panels. True. It's, but there's plenty of interesting stuff. Like when, Logan meets Professor X and doesn't believe it's actually Professor X because who would? And they end up having to fight and Xavier get, develops this suit of samurai armor, which is really cool. It's got like an X on its crest and sh- shoulder pads while it's got a lightsaber that happens to be shaped like an X, the blade. Is Professor X a weeaboo now? I, to be fair, that design is loosely based on what he had when he was fight, fighting the Shadow King the first time way back in like, the 70s. So wait, there's precedent for Pref- Professor X like donning his own costume samurai armor with a lightsaber? Well, in the real world, he's... It, he can't walk, depending on which week it is, but he's not a very physically powerful presence in reality, so in the psychic world, he overcompensates, I guess. But the X-shaped lightsaber is new. Oh, okay. And there is a nice scene where while he's got Logan caught in this fight, the panel, the repeated panels of Logan charging forward kind of dis descend downward into the background over a menacing puppet mastery looking Xavier. Yeah, that is an interesting effect. Yeah. It's not clear if Xavier is acting a lot more cold and merciless than usual here, or if he's genuinely gone bad, because he says things like, it's okay if he dies, he's not my Logan. Yeah, but then he's talking to the Shadow King, so the whole thing is supposed to be, ooh, how much is him and how much is him just playing the game? The most dangerous game. And again, it seems like very little communication was done between the artists because the shat- like the room with the Shadow King in the previous issue was like all blue. And in this one, it's got like just regular like tan lighting. Just like how the room was extremely detailed in the previous one, it some people, some other X Men fanboys who've wasted too much life on it may recognize it as the Cairo nightclub in which Xavier and the Shadow King first met, but the room details don't appear in the third issue. It's like how in the first issue, the Shadow King's top half is wearing like the fancy white shoot suit coat he wore before his human body died. But in the second and third issue, he's shirtless, giving us full view of his impressive man boobs. Yeah, the um, 
in the second issue, there was so much stuff in that room, and like the along with the texture effect that it kind like it was almost entirely just noise. And I was remember looking at it, thinking it had to have been done like with a three D like modeling program. I think Deodato uses three D modeling a lot more than he used to. His if you look at some of his earlier artwork in his career, it was very organic and fluid and ridiculously exaggerated. So here it's a lot more photorealistic while still maintaining that kind of superhero exaggeration. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm not knocking 3D modeling, but I don't know. Maybe he could have shared his models with the other artists. I'm just glad that he didn't pull out the photo referencing as heavily as he's used in the past. Yeah, it it seemed like like decent figure work. But, yeah, I guess my last point that I would say on this third issue is that Wolverine's evil face is one of the funnier things. I guess the effect that they're going with here for Wolverine being possessed is to show black smoke leaking out of his eyes. And there's also... Um, earlier in the issue, when he's yelling at Professor Xavier, he has this kind of funny smile. Right. But I well, think, is that supposed to still be Wolverine, or is he... He is still Wolverine, having like that kind of sadistic glee and that garbage day expression is, is within his moral code, because it's... A, with Wolverine, it's always been he protects the innocent, he protects children and animals, especially. If he's if someone starts a fight with him, he will take a lot of joy in killing them as thoroughly as possible. Yeah, it's Wolverine being good with kids is one of the weirder things. Well, it just became one of the ways to humanize him because at the time it was unheard of for a hero to kill so frequently and viciously so they had to give him some good some more positive traits to balance it out that's also when he started becoming a weeaboo since you brought that up yeah professor x may not be a weeaboo but logan definitely is well given how like three quarters of the women he's dated are japanese how he always ends up going to japan on his solo adventures how he says a lot about being a samurai and following his Bushido code. I'm guessing that back at the X-Mansion, he has this room that just wall-to-wall anime girls. Him sitting down with Psylocke and explaining how anime is superior to Western cartoons. Psylocke is a weeaboo by accident, since she's a British mind forcibly transplanted into a Japanese body. Because X-Men. Oh, X-Men. But yes. But speaking of Japan, next week... Yeah, that, um... Well, as good a segue as any, but next week the book we'll be discussing is the first volume of Attack on Titan. Um, Yes. You've got the creative team there? Yes, this is the groundbreaking manga series by... Hajime Isayama, that's, is, as someone who's watched the anime, very freaking awesome. This is a great, I've seen the anime and it's absolutely 
great. It's one of the best anime I've ever seen. This will be the first time I'm reading the manga, so we'll see how that translates. So yes, next week, uh, Neil will be playing the role of Logan and explaining how great anime is. But um, final thoughts on... Don't you dare look funny at Mikasa-chan. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just a buck gaijin. But yes, wrapping up now. It's okay, senpai. We'll try and keep all this stupid nonsense to a minimum next next week. But uh, wrapping up our thoughts on these three issues. Yeah, I thought in terms of my favorite issue was number three, but I felt like while the art was best there from, from an empirical standpoint, it was the least appropriate to the story. My, I think my least favorite issue was the second one because with all the interesting design effects, just actually what was going on in the panels just wasn't that compelling to me, which would put the first issue in kind of the middle. Yeah, for me, I like the first issue the most. I think, gen- like generally, I think the art was a bit stronger than the others, but also there was a lot more to work with. I guess... Part of that's because like it only had two pages in this astral realm, and yeah, so it didn't have to worry quite so much about trying to portray a shifting reality. But um, true, yeah, I yeah, but I could imagine if the team for the second issue was on like doing a story that was crazy, like had more shifting reality stuff and. Yeah, if the story was crazier for the second issue, it would suit the art better. And if the the third, like if Ed McGuinness was on like something with a more straightforward story where he could do more of this like interesting like character work and back and forth, that would be better. Well, here's a question: Do you think it would be better served if instead of do it using? veteran superhero artists who've been working for Marvel for decades that they went with really experimental artists like if the next issue were by Ben Templesmith instead of Carlos Pacheco as it's scheduled to be by Hmm. I mean it's all these guys are definitely competent draftsmen storytellers while they had any point where I was confused all that much yeah, there's nothing really wrong with this at any point, it just other than the limitations of the format of trying to do a comic where the artists change every issue. But, yeah, I don't know if, if... I'm not sure if you just had, like... If you had, like, say this story's going to be six issues long, if it was all by someone with, like, a looser experimental art style, then, yeah, maybe I could see that working... But I couldn't see it working with like alternate experimental artists every other issue. Like, Fair enough. like there are like ten named characters in this thing to keep track of. Yeah, but they all have pretty familiar designs. Like we know who all these guys are. Anyone who's been following the X Men for even passively can identify most of them, even just from the movies. Yeah, there isn't. Actually, there was a bit I was confused about, as if Mystique was actually Mystique. It, she was. She just impersonated the Beast to get it on the floor because, well, she's a supervillain. She's the only. 
she's the most outright evil of all these X-Men, others of which are either light evil or just happen to turn evil at some point. Yeah. Oh, I meant, like, trying to decipher this if you didn't know the X-Men. Like, there's a little bit at the beginning where it gives a blurb about what each, who each character is, but the Mystique stuff would completely go over your head. Well, she... We know who Mystique is from the X-Men movies, where she plays a big role, and pretty much all you need to know about her here is Blue Lady, who shapeshifts and is a bad guy, but not this time, because there's a bigger evil. Yeah. I guess, yeah, like, because the Mystique reveal comes on, like, just after they're watching a play where things are shifting back and forth in front of them. It probably would have paid to have a panel of the Shadow King going, huh, Mystique's there. I wasn't aware of this. Yeah, well, he probably doesn't particularly care which X-Men he has there as long as he gets to eat their souls. Uh, well, more for our benefit. Fair enough. But, yeah, this... Like, I reckon each of the... Like, there's something to like here for each of the artists, but them having to play with the same story... I don't know. I think it maybe does all of them a bit of a disservice. Yeah, well, I, I'm i going to keep reading this book mainly to tell you about it. I kind of think that our relationship at this point is a lot like... Have you seen Office Space? Yeah, I have, actually. Well, the way... The relationships between Peter and his next-door neighbor, Lawrence, who's always shouting through the paper-thin walls, things like, Hey, P- Peter, man, check out the breast exam on Channel 10! Yep, that's you, but with terrible comics. Yeah, so basically I just message you from the other end of the Pacific Ocean about all these weird comics and all the stupid shit that's going on, and so you don't we- have to buy them. And then that message gets passed on to the listener. You're welcome. But, yes, wrapping up, where can the listener find your work, Neil? I'm at wirecats.com, W-Y-R-E-C-A-T-S, which has plenty to that superhero people, especially superhero people who've been burned out on corporate comics, will like. You? Yeah, and you can find my work at daveclarkart.com, and that's Clark with an E. And until next week, see ya. Bye.